Here we are in Jonah again. Some of you may recognize chapter 3 from last time Paul was preaching. Uh, this is not a mistake, uh, and I haven't got his notes from his preaching last time, just to go through them again. My, actually, last time he didn't, I think. Is that right, Rachel? He didn't have his notes. No. Anyway, they were safe at home. That's nice to know. Thankfully, mine are with me. Uh, But I'm going to look this week particularly in chapter 3 at the response of the Ninevites. And then when Paul preaches on it next, he's going to look at chapter 3 again. So you're not stuck in some Groundhog Day time warp type thing. You'll be hearing chapter 3 again. And Paul is going to consider uh, the response of God. I don't know if there's an appropriate division of labor there. I understand people. He understands God maybe. But whatever. Uh, What I'm going to do is to to go through the passage and uh, try to explore what some of the verses are saying. uh, And then try and draw a few lessons Uh, together for us when we thought about how the Ninevites uh, responded. Yes, so you can have the first part. Thank you. I did notice, Martin, you weren't running along the the words with your finger this time. I think there's a special reason for that, isn't there? But uh, thank you for going through the pain barrier for us. He's got a broken finger, uh, it turns out. Um, Verse 1. Verse 1 seems a very good place to start. Um, The word of the God came to Jonah a second time. So when did the word of God come to Jonah the first time? Well, the answer is in chapter 1. And if you look at chapter 3, it very much in up to a point, very crucial point, echoes chapter 1. So in chapter 1, we had the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So why does God bother with Jonah, you might say? I mean, I think there's a nice, interesting little episode here, isn't there? God says to Jonah, I've got an important job. Go to Nineveh. Help me sort them out. And what does Jonah, the running man, do? He heads in the opposite direction, running away. Paul talked to us about that. Jonah, the running man, of course, was the non-swimming man. And uh, ended up, well, he swam. He's just directly downwards until the uh, the great fish helped him out. Uh, But Jonah... God is still with Jonah. God is still interested in doing something with Jonah in spite of his imperfections, in spite of his rebellion. And there's a good message for all of us uh, in that. If you like, Jonah is still the man that God wanted to use. And maybe Jonah kind of knew that about God already because one of the reasons why Jonah ran was because he didn't want God to be merciful to the Ninevites. He knew if he went and preached to the Ninevites, God, being God, I know what he's like, says Jonah, thought, God's going to let them off. And of course, Jonah himself now, in a sense, has been let off, hasn't he? He's experienced God's mercy, not only in God saving him from the depths, but God actually giving him his job back. Jonah was a prophet, that's what he did. So he's now experienced it uh, big time. So in verse 2, what's he got to do? He's got to proclaim to it, to Nineveh the message. Now in some of the translations what it says is it very much talks about uh, Jonah preaching against it. Remember those of you here a few weeks ago, Nineveh was the big superpower of the time, very unpleasant bunch, had a few nasty techniques for dealing with the people they conquered uh, and here he was going into the lion's den if you like, to borrow a, a picture from another book of the Bible. Here he is going into the enemy territory Uh, to say to them basically, well, we'll see what he's going to say in a minute, but uh, he's not going to be complimentary to them. And in fact, in verse 2, God says basically the same thing as he says in chapter 1, except he doesn't explain why. Jonah knows why. In chapter 1, God says, go and and talk to Nineveh. And the reason is because they're really wicked. He doesn't need to tell him that again. 
basically, just do it. No explanation. And Jonah knows that anyway. So, in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So at least he's heading in the right direction now. It's quite a long way. If he's just been vomited up on the coast by the great fish, Nineveh's quite a long way inland. It's in, it's in modern Iraq. So he's got to basically get through the coastal territory and sort of Israel sort of territory, and I think a few hundred miles. So he's got a bit of a walk uh, to make here. And the important thing, of course, is that Jonah is now obeying the word of the Lord. Jonah's problem isn't that he doesn't hear from God. And some people might say, well, I, you know, what does, God, what does God want from me anyway? You know, he's just distant. And so Jonah's problem isn't that. He knows what God wants. His problem is not obeying. This time he does obey. And in verse 3 it says, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. And that's the New International Version, which we're looking at here, taking a bit of license in terms of interpreting something that people get quite excited about uh, if you read some of the commentaries. It usually gets translated something like, Nineveh is three days in breadth. And, uh, and some people say, well, that's, that's silly. Some people say, well, that's, that's the Bible for you. The Bible talks a load of rubbish, some people say. And so whenever they read a passage like this, they think, well, that's silly. You know, the people sort of set out with a view of finding out what's wrong with the Bible. So, you know, they might have had a bit of trouble with the fish. A fish couldn't swallow a man and he couldn't be vomited out and all that kind of thing. So we've had that uh, previous weeks. But here's another one. Nineveh, what does it mean to be three weeks in breadth? I say the NIV have kind of slightly maneuvered their position to try and suggest a visit required three days. There's so much to see, so many shops to go to and stuff like that. It's not that kind of... Uh, it's not that kind of wording that's there. It's something about it just being big. Um, and some people say, well, there's Nineveh the city, and then there's Nineveh the kind of region. If you like, it's a bit like at the moment in York, West Yorkshire, we call it talking about Leeds city region, which sort of covers large parts of West Yorkshire. It's almost as if you've got that and you've got Leeds city proper. So that's how some people defend themselves. And anyway, if, you've been, if you think the Bible's talking rubbish here, how could a city be three days across? I mean, what would that mean? It's a funny measure anyway, isn't it, days? But I suppose what probably th people might think in those days, oh, we can walk 20 or 30 of our modern miles in a day. So it's sort of like 60 to 90 miles across. Now, just imagine the original readers of this hearing something like that. They wouldn't have in mind a possibility that, uh, that a city was that big, would they? They would know Nineveh wasn't that big. So clearly the writer isn't being silly. Clearly the, the, the writer wouldn't expect his readers to think it was a 90-mile-across city. He must have had something in mind when he said that. Um, and it may be that he's just talking about the reason. I actually think there's an interesting, an interesting parallel here with what goes on with the big fish. What you get uh, coming through chapters 2, where it's swallowed by the fish, and chapter 3 is, of course, this whole three-day thing. So if you think about it, uh, he's three days in the belly of the fish, and he's going into this three-day city. And if you look at um, verse 4, it says he's gone a day's journey into the city. There's a sense in which Jonah, having been swallowed by a big fish, is here being swallowed by a big city. You know, if you thought the fish was terrifying, you wait till you go to Nineveh, because there are rough, cruel people. And here he is, right in the middle of the enemy, in a sense, swallowed up by them. So it may be that that's what the writer's trying to get across to us in a poetic sense, because Hebrew poetry goes in for parallelism 
parallels. So you kind of got an echo of the big fish here with the big city. So basically, we think that, that Jonah's off the hook in chapter 2 when he's vomited out, but actually, you know, he ain't seen nothing yet. He's going into Nineveh, being swallowed up by the enemies. Um, what does he do? Well, he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, I'm a bit of a numbers man by background, so it's, it's always quite interesting looking at numbers. And 40 days, of course, quite familiar from Moses being up the mountain, from Jesus being in the wilderness. What 40 days often means is a reasonably significant period of time. So he's not saying tomorrow Nineveh will be overturned, nor is he saying perhaps one day Nineveh will be overturned. He's basically saying, look, you've got, you've got a bit of time, but Nineveh is going to be overturned. And I sometimes wonder, well, did he say anything else? So if we go on to verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. So was that just all they believed? They believed that Nineveh would be overturned in 40 days. Or in a sense, they didn't believe Nineveh was going to be 40, overturned in 40 days, did they? They thought there was a chance that it might not be. That's why they changed their behavior a bit, as we'll see. But I do wonder if he said anything else. I mean, did he say what they had to do? But we don't get any sense of that, do we? We get this very simple message. So I just wonder, as someone who's trying to do a bit of preaching, I wonder, well, how did Jonah have such an effect on people? You know, it's a fairly simple message. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. I mean, that, as a sermon, it didn't take much preparing, really, did it? You know, it wouldn't take you very long to do that. So what did he do? I mean, he's going into the city, it's a big city. Did he just basically keep walking down the street saying, 40 days, 40 days, and you've had it? And a few minutes later, 40 days, 40 days, and you had it. I mean, maybe he did. Uh, it doesn't sound like the most, uh, most powerful message. Maybe, and this was something that Paul mentioned the other week, maybe after he'd been in the belly of the fish, uh, he came out bleached uh, because he was in there in the acids. And there's supposedly examples of people back in the 19th century having had a similar experience. They come out looking pretty weird, evidently because, of course, the skin would be bleached. And, of course, you're in a part of the world where people's skin is naturally reasonably dark. So now you start getting a different picture. You get this bloke walking down the street, a very strange shade of white, or pale, and saying 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, that, maybe that's starting to get a bit more convincing. Of course, this is one seriously strange-looking person. Whatever the reason, of course, the interesting thing is that the Ninevites didn't believe Jonah. Well, they did believe Jonah, but they understood that Jonah's message was from God. See that verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. And it's one thing to believe a statement. It's another thing to actually do something about it, isn't it? So the Ninevites believed God and they did something. James 2 verse 26, famous verse, says, Faith without works is dead. If you're a hearer of the word only and not a doer, what's the point? It's not real. So basically, if someone believes something, you expect something to happen as a result, don't you? Particularly when it's something important. If you believe something important, really believe it, you'll do something with that knowledge, won't you? So here the Ninevites do. They believed God, and in this case, they repented. So they declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. So, for those of us involved in this church, as we want the people of, uh, around us to uh, 
to believe God and to understand him and come to know him, should we be saying to them, 40 days, whatever, and should we be expecting them to put on sackcloth? Well, I don't know, has anyone got any sackcloth supplies? Anyone got any sackcloth? A few old sacks? I mean, what was this about? Why did they do that? What a strange thing to do. Why would they declare Well, I think what you've got here is this was a, a, a sort of a well-known cultural thing. The Jews themselves at certain times fasted and put on sackcloth. Clearly, they weren't the only people in the region. It was kind of a cultural tradition of that area of the Middle East at certain times to put on sackcloth uh, and to fast. Now, Paul and I were talking uh, in a location called Starbucks, which will come as a surprise to none of you who know him. Uh, Paul and I were talking about, well, why sackcloth and, and also why ashes and dust and stuff like that? And we weren't really too sure. So, so I decided while I was preparing this to, uh, to, to, to do some really serious work and, and Googled the phrase. And, uh, and actually, Google, what I found on Google wasn't terribly helpful because it was interesting. A lot of people had the modern interpretation, which is it's about being very sorry. You know, it's a sort of a, a, a symbol of being very sorry for something. But actually, if you go back, really, what sackcloth and ashes and things like that are about is about mourning. And it's interesting, it's both about being very sorry and it's about mourning death. Now, maybe it's about mourning. You go into something very basic like sackcloth and certainly the dust or the ashes type idea is kind of like you're almost identifying with the dead. You know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, all that kind of thing. Maybe you're identifying with the dead. But whatever the reason for it, what I think is interesting is that, on the one hand, the idea of being very sorry, repenting, but on the other hand, what they do is they undertake a mourning activity. It's a bit like us if we were convicted of, you know, in our, in our hearts about doing something really wicked, we'd, we'd sort of put on a black tie. You know, this was the kind of thing they did for mourning. But what I think it shows is how deep it's gone. They haven't just thought, that's a bit of a problem. They've actually reacted in a way that identifies them as good as dead. We have been, we're in a position where we are as good as dead. And it says there, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 6 kind of then sort of changes our mind really, doesn't it? Because the greatest didn't put on sackcloth to start off with. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. So the greatest to the least doesn't actually include here the king, does it? I guess if you're the king, you're always the last to know, really, aren't you? No one tells you anything. But maybe the king was about his business in the palace and looking out the windows and thinking, what are all these people doing in sackcloth, sitting around? Uh, what's going on? So he said to his advisors, presumably, and he found out what was going on. So he took off his roll robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the dust. You know, this, if you like, the pits. He's at a really low point. So basically, the king does what the, same, uh, does what the others do, but he does two extra things. He issues a proclamation. Um, and one of the first things he does is, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. So he's saying that not only the people, but the animals need to fast. Now, there's obviously no RSPCA uh, in Nineveh uh, at the time. But it does seem a bit tough on the animals, doesn't it? I mean, is this some sort of quirky Nineveh Assyrian uh, kind of thing or what? Um, actually, if you look at, uh, well, don't do it, but I'll look at it for you. Verse um, 6, I think it is. 
um, Psalm 36. It's just one point in the Bible where it says actually God's bothered about animals as well as people. We often forget about animals, but verse uh, 6 of Psalm 36 says, Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both people and animals. So, uh, so God's concerned with animals as part of his creation too. It just seems a bit of an odd thing really, doesn't it? The king involves the animals. But what he's saying is basically everything I've got, my people and my animals, we're going to take, treat this seriously, this message that's come from Jonah. Now the other thing he does, if we look at the next, uh, next slide, as well as putting sackcloth uh, on the animals too, is let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So when we saw about how people were reacting, they put on their sackcloth, they fasted, but were they going to change their ways or not? We don't know. As I said earlier, the Ninevites had a bad reputation for being some pretty cruel dudes. So here they are. The king's actually coming out with it now. It's not just that response, that kind of cultural, religious response we've got to do, but we've got to do something about our evil ways uh, and our violence. Now, it's interesting that, isn't it? It's interesting that uh, Jonah should go and say to them, 40 days and you, you've had it, and kind of they knew why. I mean, these are people who don't have the law that the Israelites have. In a sense, they don't have the detailed revelation of what kind of behavior God wants. And yet they know deep down that they're not right. They know deep down that they don't live up, presumably, to their own standards. They know that what they do isn't good. I say they don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't necessarily have any detailed law. But they knew that they weren't very good people. Shuffled my bits of paper here. And so what the king says is, who knows, God may yet relent. A couple of ways of reading that, really. I mean, maybe he's thinking, well, it's our last throw of the dice. It's our only chance. So we'll give it a go. But if you think about it, it was the right thing to do anyway. Whether God was going to relent or not, this is what the Ninevites should be doing. They should be giving up uh, their evil ways. And, uh, and it works. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, you know, it's the repeat of evil ways there, he, re- he, he said, yeah, they've changed, they've changed, they've repented from their evil ways. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction which he threatened. So Jonah, as we see in chapter 4, gets quite upset about this. Of course, he wanted God to destroy the Ninevites. But also, he'd feel a bit silly, really, wouldn't he? There he was, walking about the streets, saying 40 days and you're going to be overthrown, and it doesn't happen. It's not that Jonah was right, was wrong. In fact, Jonah was, in a sense, very right. This seems to be the thing that Jonah would suspected would happen all along. This is why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. It was that by bringing them the word of God, by saying to them they needed to change their ways, they might actually change their ways and God might relent instead of destroying them. Now, Paul's going to talk more about uh, God's response, but I just want to think a little bit more about what the Ninevites were doing. And you might say, well, there we are. They didn't have any destruction. Did the Ninevites live happily ever after? I don't know how many of you know your Assyrian history. Uh, I didn't. 
But anyway, thanks to uh, looking it up. Apparently, they were overthrown in 612 BC, which, depending on when you think Jonah was, is not that long after this. So uh, maybe decades, I don't know, what, 100 years or something, I'm guessing. But uh, in due course, Nineveh got overthrown. So maybe they returned to their evil ways. But, you know, thinking about these strange people, these people who are in a very ancient city, who do cruel things, who, when they are convicted in their hearts of being not as good as they should be, put on sackcloth and fast, they sound rather a long way from us, don't they, really? They sound a long way from us and a long way from the people around us. But I just wanted, wanted about a couple of questions, really. One is, yeah, well, how should people respond to God? If someone does get an understanding that they don't live up to God's standards, how could they? They don't even live up to their own standards. You know, the good things we want to do, we don't do. The bad things we'd rather not do, we still do them quite often, don't we? You know, why? You know, what sort of response should people make? And I think when you think about it, what we see with the Ninevites is it's something very cultural. In a sense, they responded in the way that was appropriate to them. This isn't going to go too relativistic, but I think there's a sense in which the response that's appropriate for people depends on their understanding. The understanding of the Ninevites was that God was angry with them and going to punish them. It depends on your culture. You've got certain cultural tools at your disposal. So in the case of, uh, of the Ninevites, they had the, the sackcloth and such like. It's also your situation and maybe your personality. So I was just thinking about one or two other responses in the Bible and how people responded. So, for example, if you know the story in, in uh, Luke's Gospel, where Zacchaeus, you know, the little guy who goes up the sycamore fig tree or whatever it was, and Jesus comes to his house... He's so moved by Jesus coming and that transforms his life. What does he do? Well, he gives half his money to the poor and anyone who's defrauded, he'll restore fourfold. And so that's just a completely different response, isn't it? It's a response that's appropriate because he was a very rich chief tax collector and therefore had lots of ill-gotten gains. It was the appropriate response for him. He had the money. Uh, he knew where his weaknesses were. That was exactly the right response for someone like Zacchaeus to make. If we look at the sailors in chapter 1 of Jonah that we looked at the other week, after they're saved from the storm, they fear God because they think, wow, this God that Jonah talked about as being the maker of heaven and earth, he really does seem to have stilled this angry sea. Uh, they made sacrifices, and they also made vows about how they were going to respond in the future, all of which would be kind of things that they would understand and would be culturally uh, appropriate to them. I mean, after all, that's all they knew. They couldn't say, oh, right, I'm now going to go to the temple. They didn't know about the temple. So what I'm saying is that I think people's response has to come from, from them. The important thing is not what the response is from someone to the touch of God upon their lives or the message of God in their hearts. The important thing isn't what that response is. The important thing is that there is a response. That's the crucially important thing. And that will vary from peoples to peoples and also from person to person depending on what they're like. Different people have different things uh, to, to bring to that response. But also, how much do people need to understand about God before they respond to him? Or, to be, or respond to what they're being told about him? Think about the Ninevites. As I said, they didn't have God's law. They didn't have all this 
Old Testament bit that we've got, or the first five books of Moses, which the Israelites had. They had very little at all. They'd have general revelation, I guess. They'd have their own religious background, which maybe kind of pointed very imperfectly to what God was about. They understood, as we know, uh, something about there being a creator God. Uh, They understood probably something about how people should behave because people tend to have a conscience. They didn't really understand a great deal, but it was enough for them to respond. And I think there's an interesting question, really, for anyone is, at what point do I respond to what I'm being told about God? Do I try to learn more and more and more until I've got the whole story? And at that point, I sit down and I think, yeah, I guess it makes sense. I'm going to go with it. You don't do that anyway, because no one can ever fully comprehend God, this side of death. Even the greatest of saintly people, they don't know everything. They still see, as Paul puts it, in a glass darkly. So the point is, at what point should one respond? And I don't think there's ever a kind of a, a point that is too early to respond to God. You don't need to know a lot to respond. The crucial thing is to respond to the message that you've got and then learn more. And in fact, it's a lot easier to learn more about God once you're in a relationship with him and you've got that established than it is before you've got a relationship with him. It's a bit like reading the Bible. I don't know. I think for someone who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't know God already, the Bible must be a very strange book to read without actually having a relationship at some level or other with the person that the book's about. So, how much do people need to understand? I just don't think it needs to be an awful lot. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think it depends who the us is. If you haven't responded to God yet, what more do you need to understand? Maybe there's a couple of crucial things, but at some point, uh, get your questions answered, sort it out, there's a decision to be made. Don't try and find out more and more and more and more take the plunge. I was thinking, actually I was thinking, I'm not very good at sort of illustrations and analogies and things like that, but I was thinking about buying stuff online. You know, you see what you want, you investigate it, you're on Amazon or wherever you are, you look up a couple of the product features, you look up the odd review or something, and you think, yeah, I'm going to buy it. And you're going through wherever it is you're buying on, and there's the terms and conditions come up. Now, who reads and fully understands and makes a decision based on the terms and conditions. Anyone? There must be someone sufficiently sad. Even someone sad like me, I don't do that. Right, you don't, do you? Because there's this great long, there's lots more to learn, I suppose, in one way. But you just get on and click, don't you? You think, yeah, that's good. And why do you click? Well, because you're impatient, you can't understand the terms and conditions. Part of it is you think, well, they must be standard terms and conditions. People must be doing it all the time. So why don't I just get on and do it? Well, maybe it's a bit like that with, with Christianity. Is this, you know, I, like the, I like that. I understand something about it. I'm going to say yes. And there's lots of other people who have said yes already, and they don't seem to have suffered. In fact, they seem to be quite happy about it. So I'll just get on and do it. What about those of us who are already Christians? What do we think uh, about... Uh, what, how do we respond to all this? I think there's an interesting parallel with Jonah, isn't there? There's a a kind of... uh, Jonah was very reluctant to go and talk to the Ninevites about God. And I think those of us 
who are Christians can often feel very reluctant because it sort of seems a bit kind of embarrassing, doesn't it? A bit awkward. Um, but we're sort of opposite to Jonah sometimes as well because Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites because he thought they'd believe. And we don't want to go to the Castlebordite. What, what were people from Cass called? Or, anyway, Pomfretians. That's a good word, isn't it, for people from Pontifrats. I know that one. We don't want to go and talk to people because we think they won't believe and we'll look silly. So it's kind of a, kind of a difference there between us and Jonah. But what I'd like to encourage us with is that what, what did it say in verse 5? I think it was um, the Ninevites believe God. Jonah was doing it, but they believe God. Yes, you will embarrass yourself. You'll embarrass God. You will feel nervous about talking to people about God. Of course, we all do. Uh, it's just one of those things that feels terribly un-English and awkward, doesn't it? But ultimately, it's God's message. And ultimately, it's he who works in them. Did, did the Ninevites believe uh, the power of, of, an, of Jonah's message? Did they think, wow, that's a really interesting message you've got there, Jonah? 40 days and you'll be overthrown. They didn't think any of that. It wasn't about Jonah's message in a way. It was about that this was the way that God wanted to communicate with those people on whom he wanted to have mercy. So I think, don't, in a sense, don't place too much of a burden on yourselves to think you've got to have some clever message. It may be a very simple message. It's amazing what makes a difference to people. Sometimes just a throwaway line. You might have learned the most wonderful kind of explanation of this, that, and the other. But sometimes it's just the throwaway line that suddenly helps people to see what you're talking about. But also don't place too much of a burden on other people. And maybe that, if you're not in a position of, of knowing Christ now, maybe also don't place too much burden on yourself. You don't have to do lots and lots of stuff as a Christian. You kind of do, but you don't. All you need to do is to follow Christ. That's what it's about. It's, it's, it's not about suddenly becoming an expert on, on church buildings or interested in stained glass or, or uh, loving every song that the band sings. You know, it's, it's not about being all those things. It's coming to a relationship with God through Christ that it's about. Basically, just believe and be baptized, and that's it. All the rest is... Uh, all the rest is icing on the cake. I think those kind of messages really come through from this chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Jonah. It really is a simple message, and it's a simple response. And sometimes as human beings, we just overcomplicate things, don't we? And it's all really very simple.